0: Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy graziani Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. Just one small programming note about today's episode of the Morning Glory Project. I recorded this conversation with Sylvia Foti many weeks back, and this was long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, we didn't address that in our conversation. But there's a quote that comes to mind. It's attributable to many folks, sometimes to Mark Twain and sometimes to others. I don't know who originated it, but it's apt today. And it says that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And it's so tragic to look at what happened in Europe and around the world in the 1930s and 40s and how today is sadly sickly reminiscent of that. It rhymes. My heart, of course, goes out to the suffering for all of those in Ukraine, for the worry of those in the nations around, and indeed the worry of all of us that share the planet together. How I wish that all of the engineering and thought and imagination that has gone into creating more and more sophisticated weaponry could have gone into creating a more sophisticated humanity that would make war of this kind obsolete and irrelevant. I know that so many of us are wishing that today. And so, as we listen to this conversation with Sylvia, it will be interesting to listen to it with different ears than I did when we had the original conversation. Blessings to you as we listen, and blessings to those who are suffering untold conditions and those who have lost so many. Thanks for listening. Today on the Morning Glory Project, I bring you an intriguing story. Sylvia Foti was raised on the reverent stories about her hero grandfather, a martyr for Lithuanian independence and an unblemished patriot. His granddaughter, Sylvia, growing up in Chicago, was treated like royalty in her tightly knit Lithuanian community. But in the year 2000, when Sylvia traveled to Lithuania for a ceremony honoring her grandfather, she heard a different story, a rumor, that her grandfather had been a, quote, Jew killer. Sylvia, an award-winning investigative journalist, could not ignore the rumor and embarked on a wrenching 20-year quest for the truth. This journey into World War II history is intensely personal, but also filled with universal lessons about courage, faith, memory, and justice, as told in her memoir, The Nazi's Granddaughter. Sylvia Foti, I'm so glad you're joining us here for the Morning Glory Project. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Betsy. So happy to be here.
0: Well, Sylvia, tell me about uh, what I know about Lithuanian culture and Lithuania in general can be held in a thimble. <laughs> <laughs> so, so perhaps you can tell me what it's, what, a little bit about growing up in this tight-knit Lithuanian community in, in Chicago and what it was like in your family specifically.
1: Sure. Uh, I grew up in Marquette Park, Chicago, which uh, at the time was known as Little Lithuania in the 1960s, both of my parents came from Lithuania as children here, escaping the communists during World War II. I grew up only speaking Lithuanian, even though I was born here in Chicago. Hmm. And when I went to kindergarten, I still couldn't speak English. Wow. And this was a thing Lithuanian families did with their children to try to preserve the culture. It was very common. And, you know, I did learn English within a few months and I I don't remember it being difficult or traumatic at all. But um, I am grateful that I was able to have that primary language as Lithuanian when I started off. So when I grew up, I heard a lot of stories about my grandfather, Jonas Noreka. Who,
0: who had passed long before you were born, of course.
1: Yeah, he died in 1947 uh, in a KGB prison because he fought against the communists. And, you know, when I was growing up, I was always raised to uh, hate the communists because they took Lithuania, my parents' homeland, which I considered my homeland as well, even though I was born here. And, you know, like as as a punishment, my grandmother would say... (laughs) things like, I mean, she would say things like, if you're going to be bad, we're going to give you to the communists or something like that. Like, so.
0: (laughs) So that was the boogeyman in your household.
1: Yes. That was the the (laughs) communists were the boogeyman in my household. Exactly. So, um, anyway, as I was growing up, I only heard wonderful things about my grandfather, how he died in a KGB prison, uh, because he fought so bravely against the communists. In 1946, he tried to lead a rebellion against the communists. They had just taken over the country for the second time in World War II, and that's when he called himself General Storm. He was uh, only a captain in the army, but because he was trying to lead this rebellion, he gave himself the code name of General Storm. Before that, he was in a Nazi concentration camp for two years, and I was told it was because he tried to save Jews. Before that, he was the governor of Sholei, the second largest region of Lithuania at the time, during the Nazi occupation. And then before that, he led uh, the first rebellion against the communists when they invaded for the first time uh, during World War II in 1941, and Lithuania won. they got They did get rid of the communists. Of course, right after that, the Nazis had occupied the country. So... All my life, my mom had been working on a book about her father. The Lithuanian community here had asked her to do it. And so this was her project to write the book about her father. And I always remember her collecting material on him, talking about him, even giving presentations on him. Sometimes there were ceremonies here in Chicago about him that we would attend.
0: So this is no small story of heroism this is this is a big lore it's it's an epic kind of story of this larger than life hero that you grew up it wasn't just even within your family it was within your whole lithuanian community yes people people had heard
1: of him you know he has a school named after him in northern lithuania he has some streets named after him he has some plaques on uh buildings in lithuania uh, in 1997, my mother, brother, and I were invited to go to Lithuania, and my mom received this cross of the Vitis from the then-president Algirdas Brazauskas. And this is the highest honor anyone can receive posthumously. She received it for her father, of course. So he was given the highest honor possible that Lithuania can give.
0: Hmm. So your mother made it her, she had this long held mission to write your father's story. Right. Her father's story. Her father's story.
1: Right. My grandfather. Yeah. Well, she was trying to work on it and had collected a lot of material on him. But then in the year 2000, she was only 60 years old. Uh, She got very sick and uh, was dying. And so she called me to her bedside in the hospital and took my hand. And at the time I was a full-time journalist. Now, now I'm a high school teacher, but, uh, she took my hand and said, Sylvia, you have to write the book. Hmm. And, um, you know, I was devastated because I knew that the only way she would be ha- passing this project over to me is because she knew she was dying. I I was still having difficulty accepting it. But when your mom is asking you something like that in under those circumstances, you know, I
0: said yes. A deathbed request is no small deal.
1: Right. Right. It's a very heavy undertaking and Um, I had given her my promise to do it shortly before she lost consciousness. And then she did die two weeks later, but I took this very, very seriously and there was no way I was not going to do it. So, uh, here I was left with this rather insane deathbed promise. And I took it wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, and got all the material my mother collected from her house, brought it to my house. Just, you know, three bookshelves full of material, all kinds of things. Mm. And to my shock, I did not find a manuscript. There was no manuscript.
0: You thought she'd written more than she had?
1: I really thought she had written much more than she had. And she had... Some memories, you know, here and there, written, handwritten, which I which I did incorporate. But I really thought there would be, you know, the beginning of a manuscript somewhere. And I was kind of shocked that there wasn't one. So I started going through all the material very, very slowly. And then my grandmother, who survived my mother by five months, now she ha- she had gotten another heart attack. And now
0: she was on her deathbed. So your mother passed away. Her mother still living was on her deathbed five months later. And this is the woman who was your grandfather's wife. Correct. Okay. So
1: she calls me over and I'm holding her hand and she says, Sylvia, how's the book? And I said, uh, it's going well, Mochuta. You know, I have started to going through the material and I'm going to get it done you know, mom asked me to do it and I'm going to get it done. I'm not going to let it go the way mom did. I'm young. The time I was 38 and I'm going to get it done. And I thought I was giving her words of comfort. And then she says, don't write the book. Uh, there's no need to dig around. Just let history lie.
0: Okay. So you've got two deathbed edicts here that contradict each other from two women you love.
1: Yeah. And I did not understand. I mean, when my grandmother said that, I took it as she was just trying to ease my burden, you know, kind of give me a pass because this, this project had kind of stressed out my mother and I thought she was just trying to make my life easier.
0: She's trying to rid you of the burden your, her mother, your own mother had left. <laughs> that's all I thought at the time. But that's not what was true. No, I, no, I don't think so. So tell me, tell me about the next stages. What, what happened after that? A- after your mother passed? And first of all, I'm so sorry, you lost your mom and your grandma in such close succession. Uh, yeah. That's a really difficult. Thing to go through, and so that had to have you reeling anyway. uh, And then on top of it, now you've got the yes, do it, and the no, don't do it messages from them. But if you if you thought I'm putting myself in your socks, Sylvia, and I'm thinking, well, you know, if I thought Grandma was just kind of giving me a break, but Mom asked me to do this, I would still do it.
1: Yeah, that's kind of my thinking, right? Uh, You know, so I was still going to do it, and they both wanted to be buried in Lithuania their beloved homeland. So my brother and I decided uh to bring their cremains to Lithuania on October eighth, two thousand. October eighth is on my grandfather's birthday and he would have been ninety years old then. So it was kind of a memorial birthday and this double funeral burial. And uh lots of people came to pay their respects because of uh General Storms you know, him being so famous. Right. So anyway, we buried them. And then the next day, my brother and I went to visit the school named after my grandfather. And uh, we were greeted very grandly, lots of school children there holding flowers, singing beautiful Lithuanian songs. And then we were ushered into the director's office. And he says, I heard you're writing this book that you took over the project from your mother. And I said, yeah, you're right. And he says, you're such a good daughter. Our country really needs its heroes. I'm so glad you have undertaken this project. And I said, thank you. And then I said, you know, as long as I'm here, why don't you tell me how you named the school after my grandfather? Because I'd never heard the story yet. And he said, well, before we had this horrible Russian name, because Lithuania was occupied by the Soviet Union from 1944 to 1990. And it finally got its independence again back in 1990. So after 1990, they wanted to give it a good Lithuanian patriotic name. And my grandfather was born in that town. And so they said it was just a natural that they named the school after him. And I thought that would be the end of the story. But then he pulls me to the side and he says, you know, I got a lot of grief over naming the school after your grandfather. And I said, grief from who? And he looks at me like I should know this. And he says, from the Jews. And I said, what could the Jews possibly say about my wonderful, legendary grandfather?
0: Who supposedly saved them. Who supposedly saved them.
1: Exactly right. And he's looking at me again, like, you know, how come I don't know this? And uh, he says, well, he was accused of killing Jews.
0: That must have hit like a horse's kick to your chest. Yes. I was completely, totally unprepared,
1: very naive. Nobody had ever said anything about this to me. So, um, yeah, I felt like someone punched me in the gut and I, I literally needed to sit down when he said that I was standing and like my, my knees were buckling and and I had to like find a seat somewhere.
0: You know, there's, there's a line in your book, Sylvia, that caught me. It's just in the very beginning. And it says, so I was caught so implausibly uninformed that the shameful evidence flattened me. And I've been thinking about that ever since I read that line and thinking how sometimes we discover something so shockingly different than what we believed about a loved one or our history or our mate or our family member, whatever it might be, that it that the term flattened me and being so implausibly uninformed. I, I think of, you know, people that discover that their partner has a double life and a second family or, you know, those kinds of things that we discover, but this to find out that your grandfather, the hero was not indeed a hero at all. Yeah. At least not on the world scale. Perhaps he was a hero to some, but we don't want to count that. So tell me, so then you, after this, the investigative journalist in you was awakened. Yeah,
1: but so was the scared little girl who was the granddaughter was still, uh, had a very strong presence. Mm. So I I came back to Chicago and I talked to my father and other members of the community. And I'm like, have you guys ever heard this crazy rumor of Jonas Noreka killing Jews? And they're all like, yeah, we heard it. And I'm like, what, how, how can it be that nobody's ever told me about this? And they said, well, it's not true. Why would we talk about something that's not true? It's just communist propaganda.
0: And I'm like, wow. So they, they weren't lying to you. They just didn't believe those rumors. Yeah. And I guess, you know,
1: nobody thought it important enough to even mention to me. Hmm. And this was always my mom's project and, you know, I kind of, this was kind of her thing. So I wasn't that involved in any, and anything concerning his life, really, uh, to that deep extent until I started researching.
0: Tell me what, I, I, I understand what drove you to investigate. I mean, it, curiosity isn't a big enough word. It's, it's a, it's an itch that has to be scratched when there's something you have to discover like this. But tell me what, what was the thing that you discovered that was the the true nickel drop where you said, Oh, this is undeniable. He was a Nazi.
1: Um, it took me almost 10 years to find this. And of course it was my mother's archive all along. But I didn't get to it until I think I was ready to get to it. And um, this book has taken me 20 years to write because the first 10 years I spent getting over the denial of this. Mm. And the way I did that is the journalist in me finally said, you know, there's no way you can ignore this. You're going to have to investigate this rumor and at least address it. But I had this fantasy of exonerating him in it. Hmm. And so that's kind of ha- what uh pushed me at least to begin looking at, at the whole Nazi era a- in Lithuania. So I finally started looking and almost immediately I found a document that my grandfather signed while he was governor of Šiauliai during the Nazi occupation. And one of the documents that he signed called for the rounding up of all Jews and half-Jews in his region of Sheolay and bringing them to a ghetto that he wanted newly created uh, in a northern town called Zagare. And, you know, it's a rather long document, and it uh, calls for how they need to be rounded up, how much money they can bring, how many personal items they can bring, and how they all need to be there within a week by August 29th. And it didn't take me long to research what happened to them. So about 2,000 Jews were rounded up, and within six weeks, they were all murdered. Mm. And the date chosen was Yom Kippur, that they were murdered,
0: on top Um, of it. Sylvia, I, I just try to imagine what it must have been like for you to sit there and have that have the undeniable what's the word i'm looking for having the unbelievable evidence before you
1: yeah i took this document very seriously it's a primary source document his signature was on it um and you know as a journalist that's the strongest type of document you can find it's not hearsay it's not a witness saying something else he signed it and so um this is the document that really changed my mind and really all the scales dropped over uh his involvement in the holocaust. At that point, I really set my sights on figuring out what happened, just how deeply my grandfather was involved. And so that was that was the point that I kind of you know, the journalist kind of shoved the little granddaughter aside and said, okay, now we're going to get to the bottom of this. I don't care what I find
0: out anymore. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Then it was, I'm going to find the truth. Right. You know, I I don't know who said this quote and it's just coming to my mind, but I've I've heard it said that it is easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. Mm. And it seems like that would have been especially... A challenge. And I'm thinking, you know, in America today, lots of people have been fooled by lots of liars, (laughs) and how difficult it is to show them, despite every evidence to the contrary, that they have indeed been fooled. And this is not only information, but it's information about your family member. So I can see how difficult that would be, how it would, it would be tenacious, this myth, this big lore that was built. And indeed, I'm trying to figure out, and you'll have to help me, ignorant as I am of Lithuania and its culture, why is it that they feel okay about having a school named after this person, even though some of them seem to know the truth? There's a little bit of a wink, wink, nod, nod going on. Why do they still feel comfortable with his name on the name of the school? Well, He's still considered a hero in Lithuania. Nothing has changed. Even though some people know.
1: Well, see, now I, I look at a primary source document and I see, you know, I'm an American journalist and I see his signature on it and I take it very seriously. In Lithuania, it's not like that. They look at a primary source document and they see his signature on it and now they make a million excuses for him. Well, maybe in his heart, he didn't really want to sign this document. Uh, maybe the Nazis held a gun to his head and he had to sign the document. He really had no control over what he was doing. So they just fall over themselves to come up with one excuse after another for him.
0: Well, that's sort of like what I was saying about how when you've been fooled into something, then even when there's evidence to the contrary, you'll find an explanation that undoes it. Right. And that's exactly what they did. His
1: signature's on there, the results are devastating, and and they come in with a million excuses for him.
0: But the Jews in Lithuania felt differently and feel differently.
1: Yeah. And in fact, I uh, had to base a lot of my research uh, from Jewish sources because there was very little information from the Lithuanians. Um, It was mostly Jews who had written about the Holocaust in Lithuania. And that's what I had to rely on. And the more I read, the more horrified I became. And then I would compare it to what the Lithuanians said said about the Holocaust. And it was like two different versions. You know, the Lithuanians say that it was all the Nazis' fault, that it was all the German Nazis who did all the killing, and they had nothing to do with it. They were just helpless victims on the side. The Jews said uh, there were only like 600 to 1,000 Nazis in Lithuania at the time, and most of the killing, 200,000 Jews killed one by one, bullet by bullet, no gas chambers uh, like that. And they were all done, almost 100% done by Lithuanians. Mm. And Lithuania has the horrible distinction of having killed the highest percentage of Jews in all of Europe. It's almost 97%. So if you were Mm. Jewish... You had a 3% chance of surviving in Lithuania. Wow. Like your odds would have been better in Germany.
0: I told you my ignorance about Lithuania is vast. <laughs> no. That, that's, a, that's a shocking reality That's that has to be so disorienting. So you now, some years later, and you've now written this amazing book and- so this is a book about World War II, it's really, to me, as I was reading it, it, it seems more as though it's a story of you, yes, as a, as a researcher, as a journalist and all that, but it's really the story of this granddaughter coming to accept the truth about a family. And I'm wondering, what was it that kept you pursuing this, even though it was painful? And It had to be devastating to have these truths revealed. What kept you going? Because I think that lots of people might discover this and say, you know what? Let's let sleeping dogs lie." I, I know in, in America, people who have founding fathers as in their family members, and they then they later discover that they fathered children with enslaved people, or th- there are these kinds of discoveries. And sometimes they come out, and I bet you sometimes they don't, because people just say, you know what? Uh, let's just keep our membership in the hero club and not let the world know that we know this were you ever tempted to just say, you know what, I'm not going to, I know it now. I get it. I'm not in denial, but I'm not going to blast the world with it.
1: Um, yeah, I tried to drop the manuscript maybe a hundred times in the past 20 (laughs) years, you know, really, (laughs) (laughs) uh, okay, this is it. I'm done. I'm not going to do anymore. But then a few days later, I'd be like, I have to see what, you know, I I have to, I have to continue it like ended up being a, a stronger force than me in some ways. And what do you think that force was? I think, you know, one is, and I can't deny this. One is I'm a practicing Catholic and I have a very strong faith and I prayed over this every single day. And my prayer was something like, uh, God, if this is true, you are going to have to help me with this and give me some strength. You know, the writer in me can show up and do the writing, but this whole psychological side of dealing with this and getting the story out and, you know, finding a publisher and everything like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I just prayed like that all the time. And I said, if it's not true, block it, just do everything you can put all the obstacles in front of me and just block this story. But if it's true, you're going to have to help. Hmm. So I, I had that as a very strong force because I was alone with this really almost completely alone with this for about 18 years in some ways.
0: And what about your other immediate family members? How did your father, others in your close family, how did they feel about your pursuit?
1: Well, I have a brother and he was very supportive. You know, I would talk to, he's in California and I'm in Chicago. So we would talk on the phone about it and I would write a draft and he would read all my drafts. So he was very supportive about it. My father was not, <laughs> he really had a very difficult time with it for a very long time. You know, he wasn't angry with me or anything. He w- he would just say, why does it have to be you? Why can't it be some historian with a PhD. Like, you know, you're just the granddaughter. Like, why does it have to be you? And I would eventually say, I don't know, Tita. I think it's maybe because I'm his granddaughter, I'll get a lot more attention than, you know, an academic historian ever would. Um, so, you know, and the other part is this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I grew up as a very patriotic Lithuanian. And to me, patriotism is figuring out what's best for the country. And to me, the truth is better than the fairy tale. And if this is the truth, Lithuania needs to know this, you know, and come to terms with it. Because if this is really what happened and this has been hidden from us, we need to come to terms with what happened. You know, it's very traumatic for Lithuanians, for me. And I think for other Lithuanians to 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 kind of get with the idea that our ancestors were the perpetrators in the in the greatest crime in history, you know, hmm. and it is traumatic. But if it's true, it's better to face the truth. I mean, than
0: than to just live with this fairy tale. Well, I'm I'm wondering, and and Sylvia, I don't mean to presume your American politics by any means, but I wonder how you must be looking at what's going on in today's politics in America, knowing this about the truth and how sometimes we don't want to tell ourselves what that is. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, um, possible to apply this, you know, in any circumstance It's very difficult and painful and where the country's polarized, mm-hmm. uh, on, on issues. And so, um, you know what's happening today with the Confederate statues is similar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of parallels you could bring to it. Yeah, but yeah, the truth, the important thing is to get down to what really happens and just face what really happens.
0: Well, this is a a dramatic and touching and such a story of determination to uh, in pursuit of truth that it's just an admirable book and you're an admirable woman. I'm so honored by your story and that you would share it with us here. Sylvia Foti, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Your book, The Nazi's Granddaughter, How I Discovered My Grandfather Was a War Criminal, is it's a document that anyone interested in World War II history and certainly Lithuanian culture must read. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project.
1: Thank you, Betsy. It's been my privilege.
0: My conversation with Sylvia Foti got me really thinking a lot about secrets and about uncovering the truth and how, she used the word, how traumatic it is to discover something so shocking in your history or even, I would say, in your current life. But how the hunger for truth eventually overrode her hesitations and her Quandary and her seeking help in terms of her own faith from a higher power to help her get through that. I'm struck by a quote from Winston Churchill that says, The farther backward you can look, the farther forward you can see. And I've been thinking a lot about how history has lessons for us and how easily they're ignored and how we mustn't. That telling the truth about our history lets us see the truth about our present and plan for the truth about our future. That's a rather big deal in these troubling times that we're living in right here in the United States in 2022. Letting the evidence Tell us what's true, not our opinion, left, right, or center, not our bias, but what are the facts? What's the truth? And even when that truth contradicts a long-held belief, that's tough. You know, there's another quote that they say in 12-step rooms, which is, you're only as sick as your secrets. So the opposite of that must be true. We're as healthy as the truth lets us be, right? I'm going to hold on to that as my extra bloom for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. It's my honor that you would give us your time. And I hope that wherever you are, that you are finding your truth. And that that is fertile ground in which you can bloom.